Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, our roundtable. But first, joining us is Gareth Rogers, the man leading the organization of the Farnborough International Air Show that starts tomorrow in the Hampshire countryside. Gareth, thanks so very much for joining us. Oh, absolute pleasure. Uh, It's great to be reconvening after four years. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, And it is a tremendous air show uh, with a great defense component and not just a great uh, commercial uh, component where we've we've seen so many great airplanes debuted, but also so many great concepts and ideas from industrial strategy to Tempest being unveiled uh, a couple of years ago. Um, uh, You know, Gareth, we're we're twelve hours from liftoff, as as I said, all set. Uh, yes, yes, we're, we're we're in a good place. It's, look, you're never going to get away with a show this size and the temporary infrastructure that's built behind it without having some snags that you're dealing with right up until the the get go. But you know that that's always going to be the case. But actually, yeah, that, that there's an incredible excitement about this show. You know, it's it's the first it's, it's the first real global gathering since um, Paris 2019. Um, you know, you can just sense it wherever you are that people are people are excited. They're looking to do business. They're looking to reconnect. Um, and you know, from from our side, we're just delighted to host that. This is a government now in transition. Obviously, the Johnson administration winding down. Conservative Party looking, uh, you know, uh, for leadership and also who becomes the next prime minister. You know, the money is a little bit on penny mordant. Uh, so by the end of the year, we, we, end of the week, we might have an announcement. But this is also an opportunity for senior officials to talk. I know I discussed this with Kevin uh, a couple of weeks ago. You guys now have a much fuller schedule in terms of who's going to be attending and when. Talk to us a little bit about who's going to be at the show and what are some of the messages we might hear from them. You know, from our side, there's a whole host of government ministers and junior ministers joining. Uh, We have 75 military delegations from around the world. Um, That's up from 61, I believe, in 2018. We have 40 civil delegations, which is almost double our numbers in 2018. Um, So there is a real interest in the show and there's a real interest to do business um, and to start conversations. And and that's what the show's all about. It's about conversations. It's about, you know, speaking to people about what are your plans? What are you trying to achieve? You know, how can you you solve people's problems, be it through the supply chain or or be it through a customer chain? So, um, you know, from our side, we are we are seeing an interest in the show, you know, greater than than we saw in 2018, which given COVID has happened um, and everything and all the travel restrictions that still exist around the world. And, you know, particularly from large companies that that still have restrictions on 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 company travel, you know, from our side, we're delighted um, that there's this level of interest in Farnborough. I mean, it only reflects what I said earlier about that world's best airship piece, really, from my side. Farnborough has a tendency of sort of setting the intellectual agenda um, and sort of helping everybody sort of synthesize all the challenges that we're finding around ourselves now um, as we go forward. And it does drive conversations that span actually many months. Uh, and even you could even argue sort of the full year uh, for many until they get to Paris and it resets. And then and then we look forward to the next Farnborough. From your standpoint, what are going to be the big issues uh, that are uh 
you know, on your mind in terms of the, the things that you would have, you know, the, 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 the topics that you're going to be pursuing while you're there, even as the CEO of the organization, you keep your ear close to the rail. What are going to be some of the hot topics that you're going to be um, exploring over the course of the week? No, it's, it's a good question. So in terms of, um, sure, we, we have actually um, got a few topics. So clearly net zero and sustainability is at the top of everybody's agenda. You know, the industry has set itself the target of being carbon neutral by 2050. You know, that's an ambitious target, but one the industry is committed to. And, you know, we, we need to be at the forefront of that as, a, as an air show to really bring industry together to how they're going to solve it. And that's, you know, fundamental what the Aerospace Global Forum was about and bringing that together. And, I, you know, I'm sure you'll ask about that shortly, but you know, as well as that skills vacancy future workforce, you know, that's clearly a, an issue, um, you know, from our side. I think I think a survey was done recently. There's an additional two million jobs or two million vacancies created in aerospace over the next 10 years globally. You know, that, that needs to be dealt with, you know. Um, but also there's the supply chain ramp up and post-COVID demand. You know, how is that going to be met? Because it is, you know, it is a, a tricky issue going from, that, you know, the wind down that the likes of Airbus and Boeing occurred over, over COVID, and rightly so, you know, to be able to put that supply chain back in place quickly in order to ramp up again, you know, that's not, that is a difficult feat. So that's definitely going to be on. And of course, you know, defence and what is happening in the world is, is clearly going to be a hot topic of discussion. It's, defence is never a, a topic of discussion that is largely shouted about at the show. Um, it's usually done, um, you know, in the chalets and, and between the, the delegations and the participants. But uh, there's certainly an underlying conversation there that is greater than it ever has been before. You know, you, you mentioned the Aerospace Global uh, Forum. Joe Muir uh, from your team joined us last week, and we had a little bit of an in-depth discussion on what it is uh, that this new feature uh, is going to be uh, bringing together. Um, Gareth, talk to us a little bit about some of the other uh, special features, right? I mean, each one of these is a Six Sigma event. Um, indeed, you guys are now trying to do, you know, actually the the in-person stuff, which is which is vital uh, really to doing business. But then you also have virtual components. You have all of these different pieces. What are some of the special features uh, that are going to characterize uh, this show that you're rolling out, right? Because each year you're looking to improve the customer experience. Yeah, so, and, and Joe would have spoken about that customer experience. You know, we, we work hard on that and, and, and look to try and really push that forward. But I think in terms of, firstly, space, I, I, it's one of our key topics. Um, you know, we have a new dedicated space zone in what is a, a specially built film studio that's used to, to host major blockbuster productions outside of air show times. Um, so I, I think that will be a real addition. But as, alongside that is an actual space conference um, and, and space is also going to be a, a key component of the Aerospace Global Forum. So I think in, in the past, space has kind of sat on the edge of the air show where it's come right into the fold this time. And I think that kind of mirrors what's happening in, in the industry. And um, the flying display obviously will take place um, each day and, and, you know, some, some great innovation in terms of you know, the new Boeing aircraft in the 777X. And then we've got the, the new Airbus um, 350-900. Um, which is going to be up in the sky. And I know both organizations will be incredibly proud to see those as well. But it's, um, you know, the, the, then sort of sitting alongside that is just that I, I think uh, a, a change in trying to bring together um, people to have the right conversations in the right areas. So sort of theming our show around space and workforce 
and sustainability, you know, um, future flights around the urban air piece as well, where we try to direct conversation and, and create a more of a what's on, what's happening, what discussions are taking place so that people are getting more out of their, their visit here and a, a more bang for their buck, as, as you would say. So it's, um, you know, from our side, it's, it's about getting the best return on investment for our exhibitors and visitors such that when, you know, when they finish the week, they go, you know what? That was an incredible show. Break a leg. Uh, hope the weather uh, and the rails and everything else cooperates and everybody has just a terrific time this week. And looking forward to talking in the weeks ahead for some takeaways uh, from the show that people ought to be thinking about over the coming uh, weeks and months. Thanks so very much. And best of all luck to you in the next, uh, well, the next five, five days. Thank you. Check out our two weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters each week, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Joining us now is our roundtable, Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Alafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy, with uh, all four of us in different places in London, uh, with um, me at a hotel uh, downtown. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. It's great that you're all in the UK and all in London. I'm very much look, looking forward to seeing you during the week. And thank you, as always, Vago. Greetings from WC1, my particular corner of London, and it's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. It is really terrific. So if we have a few audio challenges today, I hope everybody bears with us because uh, Ron's flight was delayed, and so he's at a, he's at a pub, uh, and, uh, and so all of us are, in, as, as we said, geographically distributed. Uh, Ron, as you uh, always do, obviously we're going to talk about what, are the, what the key issues for the Farnborough International Air Show are, but Ron, talk to us a little bit, as you do every week, how the group performed, how the markets performed, and what's on investors' minds? Yeah, good, good question, Vargo. Um, it was a week where we saw you know, an inflation print come in in that 9.1%. Uh, I think that sort of fueled uh, more speculation that we're going to see higher rate rises from the Fed. Who knows? Maybe the next one won't be 75 basis points, but a full 100 basis points. And that had some impact on how, how things traded, but it's interesting. Commercial aerospace stocks outperformed defense. I think that's largely because of you know, the anticipation of some announcements. This week at the air show, Boeing was up about 5% on the week, Airbus uh, about nine and a half. The defense stocks generally were down. Uh, General Dynamics uh, and Northrop Grumman were down the least at about 3%. Uh, L3 Harris um, uh, was down about 5%. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and Lockheed Martin was down 5%. So it was a real mixed performance, uh, commercial outperforming defense. Uh, the S&P was uh, up about a percent on the week. Oil notably really pulled back, right? So if you look at Brent crude and uh, uh, WTI, they both pulled back between five and a half to six and a half percent. And the fear there is it's because of demand destruction. That's not uh, the supply of oil, but what we've talked about in the past, you know, what what eventually fixes prices is prices, and that might be starting to happen in, in oil markets. The VIX is at the lower end of its range. It's been in this range about twenty-five to thirty-five. We're at the lower end of that range. The ten-year uh, was just a smidge below. Um, 3% and the SPAC, the SPAC index, which is, a, I think, a reasonable indicator of what's going on in the retail investor world, was, was flat week on week. I want to go, uh, Sash, to get your European view in a second. But Ron, I mean, we've been talking on this podcast that there was a sentiment on the street 
that we're going to pass 10% uh, inflation in, in the United States. I mean, is that something that folks are talking more about as far as uh, you're picking up? Yeah, it's mixed, right? I mean, it's we've heard with each uh, additional inflation print, this is peak inflation. No, 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 no. This is peak inflation. Uh, I think there's a view forming on the street now that if that wasn't peak inflation, maybe we're one or two or three prints away from peak inflation. At least we're maybe approaching peak inflation. Uh, as you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised personally if we kind of get to the 10%, 10% plus level. Um, that's not what Bank of America is calling for. That's just you know, honest sense. Uh, junior varsity view is the aerospace defense analyst. Um, but we're, we're you know, approaching what probably is close to peak. And then the question with inflation really becomes, well, how long does it take it to work it away? So even if you come off peak inflation, you end up back at college, you know, somewhere like 4%, 5% inflation. The Fed's going to have to do a lot of work to work that back down to their target level. I think it was about 2%. So you know, I'm expecting future uh, rate increases. Uh, and, and the reality is most likely most of the street is um, you know, kind of, how can I say it? with the Fed sort of behind the curve, uh, you think about it, there's nobody really in many leadership positions, financial or otherwise, that's lived through uh, kind of this 1970s style inflationary environment. Obviously, I mean, this is a little bit like the military problem. Uh, not enough folks who were in senior leadership positions during the Cold War. So there's uh, not that uh, kind of muscle, uh, muscle uh, memory. Um, Sash, what's on European investors' minds and how did the group perform in Europe? Look, it, it, I, in terms of performance, it was very similar to what Ron said. I mean, the market was a combination of risk on at the end of the week. So civil stocks outperformed, but also, you know, the run up to Farnborough. Uh, there was a, you know, a gentle consensus that you want to be long of civil aerospace stocks. Um, I was surprised the BA systems ended Friday uh, down on the basis that the UK government announced a 2.3 billion upgrade of the UK's Typhoon uh, aircraft with the new ESA radar from uh, Leonardo and uh, you know installing this into pretty much every single UK typhoon over the over the coming years, and and we'll probably come back to the you know we should come back to this uh, a a commitment that this would then be rolled out uh, through the Tempest program as well. But you know BA ended the week um, uh, you know just just off a uh, off a tick, but it seemed to me that that's a big order for the uh, the typhoon program overall, and BA will get a a, a very, very big share of that. Um, the interesting thing, I think, is that talking to both investors, but also talking to companies over the last, particularly this week, but also, you know, the weeks before that, the I word inflation hasn't really come up. It's not because inflation isn't happening in Europe. Oh, boy, it is. But there are just bigger issues that European investors are and companies are really worried about. And actually, the one that is worrying people most is gas or rather lack of it, and hence the inability of companies to keep their facilities and to keep their production machinery working, um, if not now, then certainly uh, during the third quarter and going into winter. Um, the reason for this, of course, is um, that the Russians have cut off the uh, Nord Stream pipe, gas pipeline, and so Germany is starting gas rationing uh, this week. And Look, nobody is um, heating their facilities at the moment in Europe because the place is unbelievably hot, certainly by our standards. But gas is, all, is still being used for a lot of industrial processes, particularly anybody involved in forging, casting, um, or any sort of metalworking. And um, 
there is going to be much more widespread gas rationing starting in Germany, but I don't think anybody is going to escape this uh, going through the winter period. And companies are starting to think about how that will affect them. Um, uh, so that, you know, there's a, you know, in general, power rationing is, a, is, a, is an issue in the summer because European power plants, nuclear in particular, have a real problem in the summer when water flows are low, just can't cool themselves. So you might, you'd be better off shutting them down now. Um, but, you know, I talked to an, ex- an extremely large aerospace company uh, this week, extremely large. And they said, we are turning our air conditioning off at eight o'clock in the evening. Because what we discovered was a ton of our staff were staying at work to stay cool. They weren't getting very much done. But we, were, we a very large European aerospace company, were sponsoring them being cool uh, through, the, through the last part of the day. And in my parenthesis, they were probably taking overtime pay as well. Um, but, you know, this, this is astonishing behavior to be getting at this stage of the cycle. Uh, and I do think this is going to make the aerospace production ramp up just that bit harder. Uh, and the shortage of gas is going to hit the small companies the most because they won't be able to find the exemptions or get the exemptions in time uh, to get their gas supplies in November, December, January, February. And I think that's what's going to make the production ramp really hard, particularly for Airbus to achieve fully um, as we go through into uh, 2023. I, I'm not going to push you on who that company is, but I suspect that it's not a very long word and might, might start with A. Um, Richard, uh, I you, couldn't possibly comment. You couldn't possibly comment. Of course not. You're you're an English gentleman, um, Richard. Uh, you appear of of uh, us uh, to be uh, the one person who made it across the ocean without any problems. My flight was uh, delayed uh, from Washington uh, to London. Uh, Ron uh, Ron's flight was uh, delayed. Indeed, my flight was delayed by a couple of hours because of delays getting the jet across the ocean. Um, just very briefly. How are we doing, um, you know, is the situation improving? Is the situation getting worse? Because I know that you're more interested in talking about macro trends anyway, but just really briefly on this, um, you know, is anybody making any headway because people are focused on it, but it just seems, it seems in some respects to be getting worse or getting weirder, right? Like not enough air traffic controllers in Gander, huh? Yeah, the situation is stressed everywhere. And what is the one unifying theme? It's people. You know, whether it's people needed to maintain planes, people needed to be air traffic controllers and gander, people needed to fly planes, it's people. And of course, that's one of the most constrained parts of the supply chain. It's the, the personnel component. And this to me is a function of us being the last part of the economy to recover. And every other previous economic recovery, uh, we've led the way. Aviation has led the way. What happened this time, of course, is that all the other economy sectors got there first or maybe never were hit at all. So if you're manufacturing lawn furniture or electronics or you know providing house renovation services, you've been demanding people all this time. Now, what is happening now, of course, is aviation has joined the great resurgence and we're last in line. Last in line to hire people and therefore paying the highest prices or maybe not paying the highest prices. Nobody really wants to hire people at the peak of the labor market because of course, in terms of wages, that's a gift that keeps on giving. What's the macro trend you want to discuss? Well, it's really interesting. You know, I guess Ron alluded to this, that weird combination of, well, I guess we called it stagflation back then, but it's even taken a turn for the stranger. This has been the week of, uh, well, curb your expectations. The IMF downshifted GDP growth from 2.9 to 2.3, very serious for the year. 
but um, you know, not catastrophic. It implies there might be a one quarter recession or something like that. Um, but still, it's it's significant. And at the same time, Boeing and Airbus came out with the first time in, in my memory, and I think anyone's memory, that long term air travel demand forecasts were not something like four eight or four nine. Rather, they were three six and three eight. Part of that, of course, is the effect of the pandemic, but a lot of it, macroeconomic headwinds and maturing economy, and um, of course, higher costs, partly associated with things like SAF mandates and other environmental considerations. So I, th I think if there's one big theme on the macro front for the week in terms of the economy and the related issue of air travel demand, it was uh, curb your expectations, curb your enthusiasm. And that implies that perhaps there'll be some muting of uh, the inflationary aspect, obviously, you know, lower demand uh, means potentially, you know, lower cost because of lower demand for people and things. But we do have that experience of 70s stagflation, and everyone's mindful of that. Um, I, I want to broaden the conversation. D does anybody want to chime in uh, on this before we move uh, to our foreign bureau agenda and what it is uh, everybody's looking to get out of it? Maybe just maybe just one quick comment on BAE, just to add on to Sasha's points. At the end of the week, uh, BAE Ordnance Systems, uh, Radford, Virginia, uh, won a gigantic contract, $1.3 billion modification contract to uh, for the operation of the Radford Advent, uh, Army Ammunition Plant uh, for the production of nitrocellulose and propellants. Um, $1.3 of nitrocellulose and propellants is a lot. <laughs> so right. that's just, you know, at the end of a week, you know, that's, on top of the other win they had, they had that win, which was 1.3 billion. And, and yeah, one has to think that has to do with maybe some things that are going on in Eastern Europe or, or whatever. Right. But, um, you know, when we look at the awards awarded during the week, that was one that kind of popped out just because of its size. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's interesting how many thoughtful conversations I've had here, uh, whether at the uh, Global Air Chiefs, Air and Space Chiefs Conference, the Royal Air Force hosted, uh, as well as out at the Royal International Air Tattoo on um, supply chains, building up capacity, um, what are the right ways to try to do that? And one of the great things about these Army ammunition plants is that they've actually steadily, I believe, stayed in the business so they can actually surge. They're not starting uh, from scratch. And indeed, John Speller, um, a member of parliament who, who really is one of the most thoughtful uh, people I know on, on global security, who always has a reputation for being years ahead. You know, I, I recall years, years ago talking about supply chain and why it's better to have sort of, uh, you, know, you know, go into a slow, sustained rate that gives you something you can build up on. Indeed, Sash, right? Uh, the UK was able to surge on vaccines because you guys had running capability in that sector. Yeah. And um, you know, if you think about it in terms of ammunition, I mean, Ron's absolutely right. Nitrocellulose is, it's the stuff that makes the bang. There is nothing else that is more fundamental to war fighting than nitrocellulose, actually. Um, you know, if you don't have nitrocellulose, you, 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 you can't even start to think about producing ammunition or complex, um, any, any other complex propellant or any, uh, complex charge. Um, and, uh, it takes a long time. It's very, very basic stuff. The problem with nitrocellulose is if you don't produce it with care, um, you know, you lose plant and you lose capability in a, in a rather sudden fashion. Uh, and so um, putting that amount of money into Radford now, that tells that should tell everybody that the US thinks its demand is going to go up right. exponentially from its current level. 
Um, interestingly, in Europe, one of the biggest producers of nitrocellulose is Rheinmetall, and they've been buying up capacity, um, you know, to, to, to be ready for the demands to, uh, to rise. The smart guys know this is what you need to have stocks of. Um, look, uh, right uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you've got the best airplanes if you don't, or, or the guns, the best vehicles, if you don't have the munitions. Uh, and at the end of the day, adversaries can count. Uh, but I also absolutely love the messaging uh, at uh, Riyadh uh, when uh, the E-4B uh, doomsday plane uh, landed at Fairford. Um, and I think that sends a pretty powerful message to anybody who's been paying attention. Uh, oh, boy, yeah, absolutely. You know, for, first time ever at an air show for those guys, right? Uh, anyway, you, you guys actually saw it, right, uh, if I recall? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we were standing there talking, and the, the crew were extremely interesting about, uh, you know, what they could tell us about the operations, about the challenges of maintaining it, about what they want to see from its uh, successor. And then Ted, Ted Colbert, um, the head of Boeing Defence, comes up to, to go around it and have a look, because you can bet they're going to be bidding for the, uh, for the successor and uh, making a really strong push for that. And indeed, I'm joining uh, you guys uh, from uh, a room on the sidelines of the of the Boeing uh, uh, Boeing leadership meeting with reporters Stan Deal, Stephanie Pope, Stan, of course, from uh, Boeing Commercial Airplanes, Stephanie, uh, who heads uh, the company's uh, global services business, uh, which is where Ted Colbert was before he took over uh, the defense business, and and certainly the company projecting a very bullish face uh, on uh, products, commercial uh, and defense. Um, obviously, we're here for the Farnborough Air Show, truly, I mean, one of the world's great events. And now after four years, we're very excited to be all, all together. Richard, start us off on the conversation. What are the storylines? What are the questions you want answered? What are the things you're going to be talking to people about here? Uh, because, I mean, it, it, this is not just great because we connect with everybody, but we also leave with a lot of insights that we may not have had when we arrived. Yeah, that's right. I think there are three big themes, and I'm so certain my uh, my, my colleagues can can. Uh, and others, but there's two that I'm looking, three that I'm looking for. One is reflecting a currently buoyant market. There'll be a buoyant market for orders. So you might see orders from Delta, from Malaysia, maybe a clutch of others. You know, the old saying, when an airline makes money, it orders planes. If it keeps make, make, making money, it takes delivery of those planes. Not necessarily a connection, but this is a good time to order planes because, of course, growth is strong and everyone wants to position themselves for a future environment where the demand is there and fuel is expensive, so they need new equipment. Uh, that's certainly going to be one big theme. Second big theme is supply chain, of course, and everyone's going to be beating up on castings and forgings and gnashing their teeth and obviously people, 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 and why aren't engines being delivered? Obviously, Raytheon and GE and much to a much lesser extent, Rolls-Royce will have things to say about that. That's going to be something to watch. Is there going to be any kind of relief on the horizon? Uh, in terms of production constraints on, uh, on, on deliveries and the production ramp, particularly for Airbus's ambitious expectations of 65 and 70 something per month on the narrow body front. Uh, third big issue, of course, ESG. You know, we're all ready for a national heat emergency while we are on the tarmac tomorrow. Won't that be fun? Um, and, you know, it, it reflects two of the three dystopian terms in Tom Friedman's uh, predictive book, uh, hot, flat, and crowded will be at least two of those. Um, and Hampshire being kind of flat, I guess. But the everyone's going to have some kind of answer to what we're going to say to the public. You know, is it SAF? How do you get to zero carbon by 2050 or whatever else? Is it, right. is it SAF? Is it offsets? Is it obviously you're going to have people pushing 
non-solutions, you know, EV tall, not because there's a market opportunity, but because it represents an electric future. You know, the, the perfect answer to a question that nobody asked. Sure, what about the jetliners? But how do we solve 20 mile transportation problems with electrification? That's not an issue, but you'll hear it made an issue with possible read through to future electrification and decarbonization for jetliners. So those are the three issues, strong demand, supply chain constraints, and ESG. Um, I, I should point out, actually, one of the absolute coolest airplanes uh, at, at the Air Tattoo um, had to be the Rolls-Royce record-setting um, electric uh, aircraft. I mean, that thing is just absolutely uh, gorgeous. Uh, and it was terrific to see the, you know, it's part of the Spirit of Innovation project. And, and it just looks like such a lo lovely airplane. Uh, Ron, uh, I would love to, to have a little bit of a conversation because the airplane, I think, is also obviously going to be at, at, at Farnborough. Um, Ron, take us away on the points uh, that are on your mind. What do you want to hear? Um, and what are you, what do you, what are you going to be exploring uh, in your three or four days uh, out on the Sun's Anvil uh, out in uh, Hampshire, where we're going to be in the high 90s and may actually on Tuesday break the all-time uh, UK heat record uh, to get to 101. Reminds me of the Farmer a couple of years ago where we broke the 100 uh, mark. Uh, take it away, Ron. Yeah, I mean, if I peel back the onion on some of Richard's points, uh, on the supply chain, uh, it's, it's a key point. I think probably one of the most important things that's going to come out of this show will be learning more about the supply chain. Uh, you know, where the issues really are, how bad is the situation with titanium, how bad are castings and forgings, how bad is the labor system, you know, the, you know, the labor, labor resources. And, you know, and generally speaking, right, you know, the better run companies will find opportunities in this and it'll be huge challenges for the more poorer run companies. So maybe you see a little bit of a restack in the supply chain once we get through all this. But I think you know, once we get through the show, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, written about and talking about the supply chain, supply chain, supply chain, supply chain. And then I would say right. number two, when you get to um, sustainability, right? I mean, that's really the kind of the key factor. Of course, there's going to be a lot of discussion of the show about uh, sustainable aviation fuel, SAF, hydrogen, electric, all these different things. Uh, you know, at what time frame could they really impact the industry? You know, when do they move from you know, the, the 40 mile trip to the 300 mile trip to the 700 mile trip, you know, when do you go from nine passengers to 70 passengers to 150 passengers? I think there's gonna be a ton of talk about that um, from, from the OEM. So that's something uh, we'll have an eye on. I think there'll be a bigger presence at the show. I mean, I know there'll be a bigger presence of the show of the uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing crowd. Um, so that, that'll be interesting. And to Richard's point, I mean, ultimately what that, you know, you know ends up meaning we'll see, but uh, they will definitely have a big, big presence at the show. Uh, uh, and then finally on, on the order front, I mean, I think, you know, everybody knows you know, the, the orders you know, come at the show and it's, um, that's kind of the, the least, least secretive of things, but maybe we get some surprises, right? You know, one of the things I heard going into the show beyond the Delta and Malaysia stuff is that the A220 could actually have a good show. Um, that, that, would, that would be very interesting. Another company that we need to actually hear some orders from is Embraer uh, with the uh, E2 family of aircraft. So it would be encouraging to see uh, if Embraer can pick up some orders at the show um, because they're unlike going in Airbus, they actually, they actually really kind of need them now. So uh, that's, that's the stuff I'm looking for. And indeed, uh, Casey, uh, 390 um, will be um, out at Farnborough as well for folks to be able to check it out a little bit more freely than in the past. 
I, I, I think. Uh, Sash, what are you looking forward to? What, what, are, what are you going to be focused on? Okay, I, I'm actually, I'll, I'll pick up on your KC390 point, first of all. Comparisons are always NVIDIAs, but the really interesting thing, at, oh, no, there were so many interesting things at React, at the uh, International Air Tattoo, but the, the one that really took me back was that the KC390 was parked next to the Japanese um, C2 transport aircraft. These are two aircraft which nose on from half a mile away look identical. They are both twin turbofan, high wing, high tail, uh, tactical stroke operational transports. And then when you get a bit closer, you realize that this 390 is the smaller one. It's powered by 25,000 to 28,000 pound thrust V2500s. And the, uh, the C2 is powered by uh, CF6s with you know, nearly twice the installed thrust. Going into the C2 and looking at that cargo bay, and then looking from a, rather, from a distance at the KC390, the C2 is uh, the man's aircraft. I mean, that's a really impressive cargo bay. Yeah, it's not for sale, and if it was, I suspect the Japanese don't have the, the costs to be able to sell it successfully. But what an impressive tactical transport that one is. Um, and I, despite the recent order from the Netherlands, I still worry that the 390 may not have what it takes to break the uh, Lockheed's um, stranglehold on the uh, 25-tonne or not even actually the you know the tw the twenty ton cargo aircraft market. Otherwise, what are we looking for at Farnborough? Um, I'll really just concentrate on civil aerospace and the orders race. And the orders race is something that we all talk about, and it gets blown up into something that's probably rather more important than it should be. You know, one one of the two OEMs will, in all likelihood, get get more orders than the other. And as you you know you point out, you know Boeing has got an order from Delta in their pocket and. Um, that's a really good start. I do think that the most important thing for Boeing is to show that the MAX 10 and to some extent the MAX 9 are actually still alive as programs and that they their customers like them and want to continue to order them. If they can't do that convincingly, and if every press conference about a MAX 10 order degenerates into uh, attendees saying, yeah, but what are the terms and conditions if you pull the MAX 10? Because clearly CEO David Calhoun um, uh, set quite a substantial fox running when, uh, with his interview uh, the other week where he talked about how they could walk away from the MAX 10 development. So, you know, if, if we come away from this air show thinking that the MAX 10 is credible, it's going to happen, the customers want it, that's a, a real feather in the cap for Boeing. If we come away thinking, yeah, didn't actually cut through, that's going to be a problem for them. Second question, but related to that, is going to be the question that we need to ask probably for, for the show this time next week. Um, have the orders for any one company uh, actually changed the skyline? Have they made a material difference to the backlog such that that company has to change their rates relative to uh, you know, the, com the, the competitors? If Embraer has a blowout show and they state, you know, we end up thinking that the commercial aircraft rate for Embraer is going to be way north of 100 aircraft three, four, five years out. That will be news. But if we don't, if it's actually still, you know, our forecasts are unchanged or our forecasts don't change for Boeing or for Airbus, then good show. We will have learned a lot, but actually will not have changed the commercial reality on the ground for the next two, three, four years. I would very strongly agree with Sash. Um, it's really incumbent on Boeing to change the narrative, which has not just been 
negative, but it's rather been self-destructive. Doubts about existing programs, lack of explanation for existing programs, and a refusal to inspire uh, either people who work at Boeing or their customers or their financiers about their future vision. They absolutely need to change the narrative. In defense, at least of Stan, right, Stan made clear BCA is an airplane company. We make airplanes. That's our focus. Me made clear that his focus is delivering on Max 10, um, as you know, and how much progress they've made in the program. And indeed, it's going to be at Farnborough, so we get to see the airplane in the flesh. Um, you know, so I'm just saying that there are parts of the company that are trying to make uh, that message right. And in some of the articles you've seen, you know, Calhoun is standoffish and he's vesting more authority on his. Uh, line operating chiefs to do the inspiring. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you, Richard. The chief executive of the world's largest aerospace and defense company has a, you know, obligation to be doing that inspiring. But there is this sense, you know, he's he's sort of the technical guy at the top, and he's letting uh, his his uh, business lieutenants uh, do that. Ron, you know, your your, you know, anything you want to add? Richard Sasser, right on. So, yeah. Let me let me just ask um, one question. As impressive as the C two is, um, you know, Richard. I mean, what's you know, the Japanese have a tendency of developing really really interesting airplanes that actually end up not really getting any orders. Uh, they're Japanese airplanes made for the Japanese market. Uh, the Kawasaki anti submarine airplane is a is a really good one. It's a four engine jet as opposed to a two engine jet. Boeing is doing a great job selling P eights. Indeed, it's now uh, it, you know expanding its um, uh, or, or maintaining or potentially stands to grow uh, its AWACS uh, fr- franchise with the E-7, uh, Wedgetail uh, making it into U.S. Air Force service. That was a big, you know, something that started with Turkey and Australia, but then has gotten a lot of traction and is, is, is growing. You know, what, what, is, what is really the market for the C-2? It's a, it's a mark of Japan trying to expand and increase its global uh, industrial footprint as part of its gro- growing security role. But fundamentally, I mean, is I mean, how many of those airplanes are they likely to sell, even if they're the best airplane in the world for the best price? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And there are three big issues that have always plagued Japanese defense. One is they tend to over-engineer, and partly for local requirements, partly just for the sake of over-engineering. C2 is no exception. An awful lot of engine power and an awful lot of airframe carrying around not a great deal of payload. Um, a second issue Boy, the economics of Japan. It's about, it's about 30, 32, 30 tons. Is that, have I got that about right? 30, 32 tons? Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, relative to the fact that it's hauling, it's hauled by two engines that normally propel a 767 or an A330. Yeah, it's just not that impressive. The um, other big issue is economics. The Japanese, because of the boutique nature of their production and the high level of indigenization, they've always had very high unit costs. So so unless they choose to heavily subsidize it, which they've shown no signs of doing, the economics are just not going to be great. And the third, of course, is a complete lack of experience. Up until a few years ago, exports were basically prohibited by the Constitution. And so in terms of product support, in terms of marketing, all the squishy stuff associated with defense exports, they're still learning. So technically, it might have its virtues. Uh, You know, one thing I would say is that with the C-17 out of action, the A400M might be gone in a few years. We don't really know because nobody has announced a lot of follow-on orders and just a very small number of exports. It could be that it's the only military airlift game in town in, say, a decade. 
And it obviously is, uh, it's been a hell of a drain on the C-17 between Afghanistan and everything else. And that's wearing out at a much faster than expected pace. So it could be that even though things look grim now from an export standpoint, maybe one day they'll inherit the kingdom. Uh, yes, the, the meek shall uh, inherit the world. Um, very briefly, uh, Sash, I mean, this is a great opportunity, Farnborough is, uh, for uh, British leaders to get a lot of messages out, big announcements. Obviously, we're in a transition period. Uh, likely, by the, uh, by the end of the show, we sh- Britain should have a new prime minister. It's expected Penny Mordaunt uh, is going to be that next prime minister, sort of the sense for everybody I talked to uh, over, over the past week uh, here. Um, you know, what, what are some of the announcements, messages we're going to hear um, from, from your standpoint, or is it going to be very, very muted on a government level? I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be pretty muted on a government level, although interestingly, both uh, Defence Ministry and uh, Business Ministry are relatively well staffed. Um, uh, I think, you know, Ben Wallace, to his credit, and Ben Wallace deserves a lot of credit for most things, um, didn't play the game of sort of resign uh, uh, politics um, when Boris Johnson was under particular pressure. And I, he rather insisted that his ministers stayed in post because they had a real job to do. Um, and so, I, you know, there will be some uh, defence minister presence at uh, Farnborough. We've already had the very large order to rejuvenate the Royal Air Force's typhoon fleet. And there's uh, a couple of briefings on the Tempest programme. I think they're a bit le- they're a bit lower key than I would have wanted, but I think the fact that the Typhoon Order expressly uh, highlighted the degree to which technology in Typhoon and technology that's being uh, bought for Typhoon now will then be used uh, for, for Tempest, I think is very, very promising. Um, uh, Reuters broke a story last week that uh, the UK and Japan were um, looking at merging the uh, Tempest program and the um, Japanese FX program. There's been no follow-up to that in the, in the UK. I think that one is just being parked on the too complex, too con- t- contentious list, in particular because breaking that story, and that story came out of, of Tokyo, but breaking that story um, is a little bit uncomfortable for the other partners in Typhoon, Italy and uh, Sweden, who have clearly not been, not been consulted to the same degree. So I think there's quite a lot of, um, uh, you know, sort of conscience stroking that needs to be done to, to, to calm people down there. Otherwise, I think, you know, particularly if you were the Swedes, you would be worried that you would be a very, very junior partner indeed uh, if, if Japanese come in. But I think that, um, you know, we're, there's still going to be a lot of... of uh, chatter about Typhoon and, and flow about Typhoon. Contrast that with the comments that we expect Dassault Aviation to make um, with their full year results on Wednesday evening. Um, and uh, Eric Trappier, CEO there, has already been quoted as saying that effectively uh, the SCAF FCAS collaborative program with the Germans and to a lesser degree the Spanish has now been delayed in an in service degree beyond date beyond 2040. Um, if he continues with that line at a time when the, the narrative from Farnborough is Tempest is on track, we're going to fly the uh, demonstrator, hopefully 2025, so that we can fly it at the Farnborough Air Show in 2026, you're going to get a divergence of those two programs. And that's going to make it awkward right. uh, in terms of SCAF, FCAS, maintaining the, the momentum. And I should point out, right, this, uh, the Tempest outreach to Japan comes as speculation mounts that Dassault uh, may be working with the United Arab Emirates uh, on SCAF. Richard, what's what's your sense uh, on 
what the UAE brings uh, the party and what the message there is for everybody else. You know, it's really interesting because the one absolute guaranteed must have a second source market for jet fighters in the world is, well, two of them, UAE and Saudi Arabia, closely linked. They both roughly split 50-50, and they know uh, it's important to have a second provider that's not, say, Russia or China in, say, 30 years' time. And they want to be a part of making that happen, in part to you know optimize it for their local requirements, partly because they want to build their own aerospace industry. So providing some kind of, if not full risk sharing partner role, but some kind of indigenization role. And then, of course, just to make sure the product is available and competitive and desirable in 30 years when they start to think about uh, you know their next fight, their next round of fighter plane purchases. So they bring an awful lot, and obviously. You know, they've just become the single biggest Rafale export customer by a wide margin. That shows what they can bring. And of course, the Saudis were the single biggest export customer for Typhoon and the single biggest export customer, the only export customer for Tornado. So obviously, these markets are hugely important from the standpoint of European future fighter development. To be really clear about this, um, what the UAE brings to SCAC, FCAS, or, or whatever SCAC uh, becomes is catch. Uh, they bring development funding uh, that would enable the French, if they decide to go it alone, uh, to um, uh, avoid having to go to Germany or Spain or anybody else uh, to cough up 50% plus of, of the development costs. And the UAE can do that. I don't think that by the time that SCAF or FCAS or, uh, or Tempest are being developed, that industry in the Middle East is going to be able to make a significant uh, contribution. Um, but they, they, they will buy themselves the slots, they'll buy themselves the place, they'll buy themselves the position at top table, and that, that is worth having. And uh, everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Look forward to uh, seeing all of you uh, to our audience. Uh, tune in uh, daily for updates from the sidelines of the air show on what uh, some of the world's top analysts, including uh, this uh, August team, uh, find interesting on uh, a daily basis. And we'll bring you some thoughtful and provocative interviews. Uh, also a note for folks to check out the Royal Air Force's uh, Global Air and Space Chiefs Conference. Uh, some of the comments made uh, by uh, the U.S. Air Force Chief uh, General C.Q. Brown, uh, the Chief of Space Operations General J. Raymond, and uh, the Chief of Air Staff uh, Air Chief Marshal uh, Mike Wigston were, were absolutely terrific and, and very provocative and thoughtful, uh, as well as some of the other uh, panel discussions. Justin Bronk uh, of Rusi uh, did a terrific job as well. Everybody, thanks very much. Glad to be in the same country soon uh, to be uh, at the same air show, uh, meeting in person uh, and, and covering this great air show. Thanks so very, very much. Break a leg and stay cool uh, and see you soon. Yeah, great to be here, Vago. Wouldn't be an air show without it. Uh, thanks very much, Vago. See you at the chat. Thanks very much for doing this, Vago Sash. Thanks for welcoming us to your wonderful country. And Ron, see you soon for a pint.